Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. Yeah, we're, we're very, very good at grabbing someone off the street and deconstructing their entire identity um, and indoctrinating them into a culture that puts that identity last in the order of mission and team. And then the way in which we too often reintegrate that person into society is we reconstitute that identity through a resume or a CV. It's Australia Day and for this week's episode, I had the honour in chatting to a retired Special Forces Major and decorated combat veteran who has dedicated his life to serving his country. One that I was proud to be born in and also very aware of the sacrifice and commitment that it takes daily by our Defence Force to allow us to live with the freedom we do. Since leaving the Defence Force, he, like many other veterans, has had to navigate post-defence life and as you'll hear, it can certainly be a complex transition. It's through this journey that a passion to champion the needs and cause for other veterans was started. Amongst other things, he founded and ran the first veteran games on the Gold Coast in 2023 to bring veterans together in teams to showcase their physical resilience, teamwork and problem solving in an Australian first team competition. You'll hear more about that along with his thoughts, reflections and insights as you listen to my chat with the man that is Heston Russell. All right, Heston, welcome to Share. Steve, hello, mate, and thanks for having me on. It's an absolute honour to have you here. I know you've been busy recently. Uh, Life is busy, but that's what makes it fun, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you've got a a pretty decorated story and have had an amazing life. I'd love to get a bit of a snapshot on, on where you started and kind of what's led through to today. For sure. So I guess a very military life. Grew up, fifth generation veteran, surrounded by the aspirational men that I wanted to be when I grew up. So I joined the military straight out of high school, went to the Defence Force Academy and Duntroon down in Canberra, became a uh, army officer, went up to Townsville for three years, peacekeeping in East Timor, and then joined the Special Forces through the 2nd Commander Regiment in 2010. And between then and 2019, I deployed to Afghanistan four times. Iraq got deployed, uh, sorry, got posted to the US on exchange for a whole year. And then when I left the military in 2019, I bought a fitness brand called Barry's Bootcamp over to Australia and really got into sort of my veterans advocacy work. And today I run my charity, Veteran Support Force, vsf.org.au. And then we just launched the Veteran Games on the Gold Coast this year, this September, October. So yeah. There's definitely a few things there that I want to dive into that it's on my on my cheat sheet to ask you today. Okay. But going through military... Was it something that you kind of, it was a given being a fifth generation that you were going to go down that line? Well, I think, yeah, I, my childhood was, you know, varied and interesting as everyone's is, but I sort of was the 
fat, unpopular kid at high school and all the guys that I wanted to grow up to be were sort of the military men that I'd been around moving around Australia and their kids that I sort of grew up with. And I had some very good friends who went into the military ahead of me and one in particular who went to the commandos and did the whole sort of path I ended up walking. And it was just really was that variety, that sense of adventure and that community and culture that's really built on actions and attitudes as opposed to sort of popularity and all the rest that I struggled with in high school. So yeah, definitely was surrounded by it. I don't think it was preordained, but it definitely was the part that I saw the most aspirational during those formative years for sure. Yeah, excellent. Now you had a lot of roles over your 16 years in in the military. Mm. Tell me what were some of the best roles or what some of the roles that you really enjoyed? Being a platoon commander. So when you graduate and become a young lieutenant, I was an infantry lieutenant. I was a platoon commander up in Townsville for three years. And then when you join the special forces and I joined the commandos, the platoon commander is the next rank up. So when I was promoted to captain, I was a platoon commander again and deploying overseas on combat operations, particularly 2012 in Afghanistan, leading my platoon on 67 missions, killing 117 insurgents, catching so many more, but doing so with a team that you trained up with that were your brothers that you cared for at the bromance sort of level was pretty amazing. And then the last part of my career in particular, running the commando selection course, being able to adapt that to really refine how we tested the emotional intelligence and selected, trained and mentored the next generations was really a beautiful capstone on my career and really helped me appreciate um, how much I could give back and that satisfaction of training and mentoring others for sure. Yeah. When I heard you speak at Jet's U Leadership Roundtable, I was really impressed with what you were talking about around the selection course. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, selection course is fascinating. I mean, back in my day, uh, it was six weeks and I started the course at, you know, 92 kilos and finished at 75. And the special forces selection course or the commander selection course is designed to break you down physically and mentally to expose your intrinsic purpose, like your true emotional sort of strength. And to this day, it's still the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and ever done in my career. And it's meant to be because so much of it is also pushing you to your limits, breaking you and helping you be aware of what your limits are and making sure you reflect on those. And we do all sorts of sort of psychological, not, I wouldn't say experiments, psychological tests and trials. And I mentioned at that talk with Jets about the, the book, The Five Love Languages, and you replace the word love with the word value or motivation. And we have periods of silent running where we would remove all forms of communication and affirmation from our candidates and send them out on three days by themselves with 60 kilos on their pack, walking a hundred kilometers, trying to navigate in between. And you'll get the majority of people withdraw themselves at own request during that period because they would spend the time with thoughts ricocheting inside their head, questioning all of those extrinsic motivational factors like the status of the Green Beret, the pay packet, the operations, all the rest, and really question why they're doing what they're doing. And again, that selection course, you know, you might start with 120 that's been filtered down from a group of thousands who have applied and we've traveled around the country to do some pre-screening and you'll finish with a group of 30 and 80 to 90% of the people who come off that course pull out their own form and withdraw themselves at own request. And it's meant to do that. It's meant to test that mindset. And uh, I've learned so much from how we applied those different stresses and pressures to people on that course and then talked them through that reflection piece and was able to then draw a lot of conclusions from how a lot of people struggled in their own mental health and mindset during things like COVID 
where they were forced to isolate, they were removed that, you know, physical touch, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, all these things that we unknowingly require and function to thrive better as humans. Uh, and really get, when we get deprived of it, it hurts us at that sort of emotional uh, and mental sort of health level. So what I'd love to know is what did you learn from one, you participated and got through it later on going through that selection course and, and putting others through it? What did mm. you learn from those that passed? But also what did you learn from those that withdrew? The, the massive part that I have learned and then subsequently gone on to help train sporting teams and all the rest is the difference between high performance and elite is mindset, not skill set. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have people who have already been in the military for a number of years, done deployments. We even had this direct entry scheme where we had former Ironman, former Olympic team members who have never really been pushed beyond that sort of high performance level and require their own personal mindset to drive them. They've always had others, coaches, teams, groups to help them through that. And we all know it when we watch the Olympics and you'll see the races line, line up for the 100 meter final. Everyone there has probably run a time, a PB faster than what they'll actually run in that race. And so much of it comes down to that mindset piece and just really understanding. And we've heard it all, all along how much the mind controls the body and controls the heart. You know, we are very rarely able to push ourselves to the true limits that we can actually take because, you know, our, our head tells us we need to stop, we need to stop. Whereas by the end of that course, we've broken down people and rebuilt them so well that we would have to finish, we would have to stop, call a stop to activities because guys would pick up a weight and dislocate their shoulder and just keep going. And it was just incredible. And that was the whole idea of the selection course is to select the right people that you can train to do anything. And I think you can apply that to any workforce, anywhere. You have the wrong person at an intrinsic level, at their personal ethos level, what their values are, no matter how much training you give them and how amazing they are at pulling in all the money and all the profit. Long-term, they will not be good for the team and good for your culture. And they will end up being a cancer for that. And it really helped me appreciate the differences between focusing on those immediate um, superficial factors, those immediate performance factors, that immediate you know, attitude factors that can be very easily bluffed by people who know who they are and have the confidence and then how much you can actually draw out of people when you put them through those very intelligent and precise sort of activities and how much for the betterment that is for your organization, for your culture, and also for them individually. And what I left from though, what I learned from those who left the course, as I said in that talk with you and Jet and the team, was just how powerful, again, that mindset piece is. You'd have someone walk over to you, pull out their form and say, yes, I want to withdraw it on request. I have this going on in my life, this isn't right for me, this, 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 and this. And they are 100% aligned in their head, body, and heart to that is exactly what they want to do. And we'd have them go and put their gear on the back of the ute and drive down the road. And you just watch in the rear vision mirrors, they'd have this come to moment, this moment of clarity. And you just see them go like, you know, what the F have I done? And you, like I said, you pull over and you have a chat and say, like, talk us through it, you know, because 10 minutes ago, you were so aligned in head, body, and heart to this was the decision and now you've had some clarity. Now you're out of that mania. Now you're out of those stressful conditions. What's gone through your head? And it was so important to sit with them and have them, you know, have that reflection. And as I spoke with you and Jet and the team about, it's so much relevance I've drawn from that when identifying and working within the, the veteran space and the wider community space when it comes to mental health and suicidality and myself having my own sort of experiences with suicidal ideation. 
how again powerful that mindset can be when it takes over and says, no, this is exactly what needs to happen. You know, this is exactly the situation. This is exactly the circumstances and how important it is to have those people around us who can reach in, who can break through, including our own routine to help us break through those periods where we think it's the absolute definite thing that must be done for the world to keep spinning and the sun to come up tomorrow. Those people that withdrew, popped their stuff in the ute and headed on down the road, were they able to apply again? Yeah, they're able to apply again. They couldn't, they definitely couldn't rejoin the course. You can imagine the whole idea is that we need to push people to that limit and we need them to self-select whether they're going to stay or whether they're going to go because at the end of the day, that's a, this is a selection course. You know, this is a, a safe space. You can't have someone on, you know, an individual or a small team task behind enemy lines doing what we do in the special forces and all of a sudden decide that, you know, they can't go on. That we just, you can't reward that attitude. And we had so many people go away and have that reflection and have that deep dive with themselves. And we would debrief everyone leaving the course and come back and be in the unit today. Again, so much of that selection course and so much of any adversity we have in life needs to have that time to reflect on and learn more about who you are in different experiences and under different stresses. And nine times out of 10, well, 10 times out of 10, unless they've done the course before, nobody's done the selection course and being pushed to those sort of extremities. And that's where people either evolve or people uh, go away and need to do some more work. And I guess in those selection courses as well, you know, you'd see the tough guys come in and you would have seen some of those guys sitting in that ute on the way back down the road. Yeah, that's it. I mean, pushing past things like toughness, confidence, all the rest, like authenticity, 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 and just really testing people's mindsets. The beautiful part about the selection course, I mean, and you form some of the strongest bonds you'll ever carry through the rest of your career on that course with your peers and even with the instructors. Because you are literally just pulled all the way back to, you know, the diamond in the rough because you have no energy. You have no ability to put on any other layers of inauthenticity or distraction or pride or confidence. Whatever is coming out of you at that point of time in your lowest moment is the real you. Uh, and some people are, are beautiful, funny, hilarious people, even still in that position. But that's the amazing part. You know, we can usually hide some part of us in everyday life these days, amplified by behind computers and emails and social media and all the rest, right there and then you are authentic, you are accountable, you're exposed raw and, and in a way uh, that is so positive, <laughs> even though I might not feel like it at the time. Yeah. Obviously over a hundred combat missions with the special forces and, and all your time in, in various countries. It really is life and death, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I enjoy this conversation because there's such a sort of stigma surrounding what we do overseas. And I know I'm not alone in this. It was the funnest time of my life because especially in combat operations, like again, you're not on a selection course, but you're being pushed to the extremities of your you know, physical, mental, and emotional self. But in the most realistic scenarios, you know, someone's not doing it to train you. It is life or death, as you say. And you're doing it with a group of people who are right there with you, who've had the same experiences, who you love like your family of choice. And you are so aligned in head, body and heart to the mission you're doing. I still watch helmet cam footage and combat footage from my time there. And I was so 
in the moment and present and authentic. And I never cared if I lived or died. You know, we do a whole lead up training, like I told you guys about, where we write out our own will. We write letters to our families and our friends. We even say where we want the flag from our coffin to be given to. We write down the passwords to all our accounts. You know, we literally are in such a place of acceptance. And we've all known people who were deployed beforehand and sadly made the ultimate sacrifice and died in combat. So it was all very, very real and very, very visceral to us all. But, you know, I had so many bad helicopter landings. I had my pistol holster shot off my hip. I had one of my guys die over there blown up by an IED. And there was never once that I feared for my life. It was like, hey, if I die, I die doing what I loved with I love, with who I loved. As long as I was good at my job and didn't let anyone down in the process. And it was just Again, that authenticity, that accountability, feedback is immediate. There's no pretending. When you're particularly engaged with the enemy and trying to make them do things through the way in which I would call in helicopters or the deception plans and things like this, it was, it was so real and it was the most relevant and authentic thing I've ever done in my life. And I actually miss that environment surrounded by a society that works for profit, not purpose, uh, people who are happy to be inauthentic and rely on their own authority. Whereas I learned leadership at the cold face where you couldn't just tell people what to do. You had to lead by example in every single thing that you did. And where the true leadership and courage and bravery and all the rest comes from, I got to learn it right back at the absolute basics in the most extreme circumstances. And a lot of my frustrations these days is sitting back and listening to leadership coaches, politicians, people in these positions of authority, be they self-appointed or otherwise, who have never even taken the time to go and learn the fundamentals or haven't just been exposed to that. And instead, what you find is these layers of inauthenticity creep in. They start projecting or protecting any insecurities they have when they speak with people like myself or feel they need to be showing real leadership as opposed to sitting down, listening, collaborating. And remember that leadership is about like service and support to the people and the mission that you're responsible for, not about what you're entitled to by any rank, position or authority. Sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but no, that's passionate about, as you know. No, that's brilliant. Now, tell me about you go from having some of the fun of your life with a great team and, and great blokes that are focused on their mission and their purpose and, you know, living their passion to coming back to everyday life. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, during the military, like I said, I deployed overseas four times to Afghanistan, again, to Iraq, all sorts of constant things. What I reflect on is now realizing how immersed you were in those deployments, but you'll come back, go through a decompression period. You literally couldn't log in and do work. You were off with your family, really filling up the rest of your cup, the whole yin and yang. I think we had down pat really well, but you always knew you had that to go back to. And I often joke that it was really difficult to me to go from leading men in combat overseas to waking up and my biggest responsibility is to take my sausage dog for a walk. I have been trained to a level that there is not a mission that I haven't been able to, to find a way to solve with the right team and inspired by a purpose that isn't profit, that is helping others, that is doing what needs to be done in service and support of others and requiring my responsibility, my leadership and holding me accountable. And a lot of those values, I just said, like particularly accountability and responsibility are so hard to find these days. <laughs> and a lot of veterans really struggle with this concept called moral injury, where 
your value set is somehow undermined by yourself, by others, by the environmental circumstances you're in, and particularly transitioning from that culture of leadership, service, responsibility, accountability, authenticity to quite often the complete opposite within corporate Australia, within political Australia, within society that likes to focus on how people were born to provide entitlement as opposed to the meritocracy we come from of what you earn and how you turn up with your actions and attitudes each day is really, really, really difficult. And especially when you've been indoctrinated into a psyche, into a culture where you place yourself last in the order of purpose, be that mission team yourself. And you've always been able to help others and do incredible superhuman things to solve problems. Admitting that you're bored, admitting that you're frustrated, admitting that you don't feel relevant in this world and asking others to help you is the last thing that we are trained to do. And too often, um, as is the story, I've had more soldiers that I have known or been responsible for take their own lives back home in the safety of their own homes, with their families, with all the the beautiful comforts and freedoms that we fight for, simply because they're in a place where they don't feel relevant within that world. And uh, I've had that experience myself. And so much of that is the reason why I sort of really took to finding purpose, which we're great at doing, fighting for the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide, which we won and is underway, and realising I need to sort of give back and support the veteran community through things like my charity and the veteran games. Yeah. 2020 was a tough year for the world with COVID, but it was a tough year for you as well. Yeah, 2020 in particular. I mean, I broke up with my partner of four years, went straight into, we were literally in the US, flew back, first planes to go into lockdown and broke up just before getting back. So we spent two weeks in self-isolation, broken up, one week out, and then the nation went into lockdown for two weeks. So that was a very, very condensed breakup. And that was my first publicly gay relationship. It had been four years. Their entire identity had been interwoven with bringing Barry's here and you know, everything. I'd invested so much of my identity into that and saw it as failure as opposed to a relationship. And then throughout that year, just more and more of my ex-soldiers started to struggle. And I personally got a, a call about one of my soldiers who'd attempted to take his own life. And it sent me into a spiral where next thing I sat there and sort of planned how I was going to take my own life and do it in such a way that I could use my social presence and all the rest to uh, really help ring through to those in political power and decision-making that we had a problem and that it needed to be addressed. And fortunately I was snapped out of that moment by that same little sausage dog that I spoke about that gave me responsibility. And I ended up sort of taking that letter and those details that I'd learned and turning that into sort of my campaign for greater awareness and support for the realities of sort of mental health and suicidality in veterans and in general. Yeah, no, that's good. Obviously back in 2018 for me, I started to not feel right, burnt out, or what I've worked out was burnout, gone through the depression, the fatigue, the anxiety. So when you were talking at Jet's session, the big thing for me that really resonated with me was when you were talking about self, how having the courage to be yourself. Yeah, massively. I mean, I went throughout my entire military career sort of, one, not knowing what my sexuality really was because I'd never grown up around anything other than sort of the heterosexual nuclear family. And then two, 2015, when I was in the US and I finally accepted that I was gay, 
never wanting that to enter into the culture, which was starting to be influenced by the wider society that looked for difference and to progress people or highlight people on such differences, as opposed to, again, my veteran culture and my special forces culture, which was merit actions and attitudes each day. So I chose to suppress more of that. And as I think I said at Jets, when I actually finally accepted who I was and just started living my authentic life, I never came out or any of that, but the amount of guys who came up to me and saying, you know, wow, with what we know about sort of mindset, high performance, elite, all the rest, knowing that you had, you know, one, two or 5% of your mindset, potentially holding yourself back, worried if people would find out about your gay. Just imagine if you could put that into your whole psyche. And I mean, we all have those little bits and pieces that we think that we just affix shame to. Brene Brown, I love listening to her and her concepts on shame. And it's actually just becoming comfortable with who you are and not becoming so influenced by the opinions of others unless they really are those that you enter into that circle. And I think, I mean, society's got a lot to answer for at the moment where failure is seen as the worst thing and shame is associated with it and all the rest. And again, I was just so fortunate to come from an organization, particularly in the special forces, where we push people to failure. We push missions to failure. We pushed ourselves that far because we were so mature at then doing that reflection and learning from those experiences. And it's been, yeah, sort of very difficult. And I see it's so difficult for so many people these days to achieve that self-actualization. And it only comes from putting yourself through experiences that you spend the time to reflect upon and finally get to that level of wisdom. You know, we all talk about when you finally get to that day where you don't care what people think about. I don't think we're ever always going to be there. But yeah, it's just a product of your experiences. And I've definitely been privileged to have a lot that have really smashed the pieces apart and brought them back together. But like you said, mate, you've got the same as well. Everyone goes through this exact same thing. I've just had sort of extremes of life and death and all that. But the the simple life is often the hardest life because you have to sit still in your own silence without purpose, which is too often, you know, those external forces that help push us together. Yeah. I, um, you know, obviously being a real estate agent for, you know, 15 years at the time, we've owned the business for 20 years now. But for me, I thought after all that time, that's what defined me and yeah. kind of stripping that back and kind of going, that's just a role. That yeah. doesn't define me who I am and what I bring to the world. But that was a that was a pretty bumpy ride because it takes some ego to drop. Yeah. Um, and to to look at yourself in the mirror and kind of go, who am I? Who do I want to be? And then finally get the courage to actually go, I'm going to be me, irrespective of what anyone else thinks. No, I love that. You're spot on, mate. It's identity, identity, identity. The Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicides identified three key factors across the, the sort of suicide crisis we have. Loss of purpose, loss of community, and loss of identity. And these days, it's all these labels others try and apply to us or we try and apply to ourselves because we think we need that from a marketing perspective for people to understand us and put us in a category. And that's been the biggest thing for me is you know, each and every day, it's like, even when I do an interview on the media or whatever, it's like, how do we introduce you? I'm like, Heston Russell. <laughs> like the one label we have to carry is our own name and what that stands for for us. And I have the old analogy in my head of looking in the mirror each day and just saying, hey, look, I'm Heston Russell. And it comes down to what I do each and every day. Because as soon as you walk out that door, 
you have all these people trying to put labels on you and try and pull apart different pieces so they can help to understand you. And it's just how rock solid you are with your own identity outside of purpose, outside of community, but empowered by purpose and empowered by community. That is the most difficult part. And again, that's that whole COVID piece or, or whatever, all the silent running piece on the selection course, make someone sit in their own silence for three days, make it physically tough as well and give them an option out of there. And that time taken to really analyze who am I outside of the noise, outside of the job, outside of the relationship, outside of the social media, outside of the success, outside of the shame, outside of the failure, like who am I if all the electricity goes out tomorrow and we have to fight for our own survival? Who am I and what do I stand for? What are my values? And then at the same time, leaning into how empowered I am by purpose, that is purpose for others, purpose for money, purpose for those extrinsic factors. How empowered am I by having the right people in my life? Or how empowered am I by having people in my life and which people in my life are good for me and which people are not, which are distraction and all the rest. And it's just so fascinating, mate, you know, how much we know about ourselves and how much we accept ourselves. That is that difference between high performance and elite. That's that mindset part that will make you be elite in anything because you can spend the time learning the skills required. Now you're a big champion for change in regards to veterans um, yep. and the support. When I first met you, we spoke about how you've got this selection course, how you get in, they put so much investment into getting people there, getting them ready to go into combat, but there's not the same investment on the way out. Yeah, we're, we're very, very good at grabbing someone off the street and deconstructing their entire identity and indoctrinating them into a culture that puts that identity last in the order of mission and team. And then the way in which we too often reintegrate that person into society is we reconstitute that identity through a resume or a CV. We focus on skills and qualifications and like-for-like like roles they might go into corporate Australia. And we don't spend the time saying, hey, you're actually an expert problem solver. You're someone who's actually good at being liked by others and can apply that to leadership skills. You don't, you're probably going to be worse off going into a corporate role where you have such a defined job description and you're not so used to be constrained to the parameters of only being allowed to solve this problem while you see all these other problems on the sideline because people get competitive and don't like you stepping on their toes and don't appreciate its collaboration and all the rest. And we don't spend that time talking about, you know, you've gone from working in the one of the largest not-for-profit, like for a for-purpose organization, your entire military career is for-purpose. It's not for a spreadsheet of KPIs or, you know, a return of investment. And then all of a sudden, the rest of the world operates off budgets and financial dividends and billable hours and all the rest. And, uh, you need to be able to represent yourself because a squeaky wheel gets the oil and people aren't behoven to their values. They're behoven to what gets them success, gets them status, gets them promoted. So we just don't have those adult conversations. I mean, as we even spoke about in that chat, Steve, you go from an environment where, particularly in the special forces, when we're on the domestic counterterrorism role, you have drug and urine testing monthly. You don't go out and get yourself into any form of situations that could cause any issues in your personal life because you need to maintain your deployability. And then, you know, I went from nine years in Sydney out next thing, 
why is everyone lining up for the bathroom <laughs> and not going to the bathroom? You don't have these conversations about the drugs that are everywhere and how most of our nervous systems have actually been so high wired from fight or flight exposure. The PTSD actually comes down to depleted adrenal gland and a, and a nervous system that's ready to take on substances like caffeine, cocaine, all these other things that wire us up and impact our mental state to a, a terrible place where we actually need to do more breathing, stretch, release, engage in the other pharmaceutical treatments that are now legal to help us flood our systems with oxytocin and serotonin. We're not having these intellectual conversations. And admittedly, because the mindset in defense is if you can't run on for the first 15 and you can't sit on the bench, they have to make room for the next people who can because they have this mission to achieve. And we haven't yet bridged that gap proficiently enough. And also, mate, because we're not listening to the veterans who transition, because we're listening to those who are still in uniform, in service, trying to say how transition needs to be. And the amount of politicians and organizations I've engaged with have gone, hey, look, Major Heston Russell would have had the a completely different and completely wrong plan, even as good as I was at planning and everything else during my time in service compared to what I know now, having gone through that transition and failing at that transition process myself. But there's a bit of a pride and a bit of a culture and leadership issue within defense at the moment where engaging with and listening to the ex-veteran community or ex-service community is again, falls into what you see most in the corporate world, that sort of competitiveness and that comparison and that we should know this because we're the ones in authority as opposed to that collaborative and positive uh, approach that could be achieved. And it comes back to vulnerability. I think the hardest thing is, is that from a, a defense force, they spend so much money, they're recruiting, they, as you say, they need that wheel to keep moving, that machine to keep moving. Yeah. And the hardest thing, I suppose, for them is they kind of want to hide the problems, right? Because they don't want to have new recruits that are coming in saying, oh, look, you're probably going to leave the the force with PTSD. You're probably going to have a marriage breakdown. You're probably going to have all these issues. But in saying that, what you just said there is that you've learned more about yourself that could actually be applied. And probably guys like you, other veterans can actually help the new recruits in being able to get through that entry, but also know that how how can I find more out about myself? How can I be true to myself? And how can I transition back into life post-military? Yeah, massively. Like the military made me the man that I am today. And that's the part that I'm so grateful for. And so much of my frustration comes from when people aren't actually able to or don't realize their true potential. And so much of that just comes down to conversations that address exactly what you said. I mean, I've worked in the US military for a couple of years, deployed, lived over there for a year within them as well. And one thing they do magnificently is when they recruit people, they recruit them with the mindset that, hey, this is a career. This will be one of your careers that will make you a better person in your life, but it will end. Whereas so much of the Australian system is recruiting as in this will be your life. This is a life. This isn't a career. And so, so much of the issue comes in the mental health space from young guys and girls who have their career cut short through injury, through performance, through whatever. And that's actually the highest risk of suicidality because their entire lifelong identity has been embedded and manifested in this that's been cut short or they've been found to not be able to succeed at. Secondly, we don't maintain adequate sort of parallel personal and professional development in the military. So much of it is focused on what you need for your career. 
we don't educate them. It's like, hey, even though you're going to move around all the country and you're going to be the priority in your family, you need to still prioritize your family because all of a sudden one day this is going to finish and you just can't all of a sudden be there and expect things to happen like normal. There'll be resentment if you have looked over your partner's career, your kid's education, all these things and not come halfway on some of these conversations, let alone decisions. And then again, that transition piece like we spoke of, realizing that, hey, the world outside is different. You've been existing in it while you have been working in the military. Don't think you actually know what happens unless you've spent that time. And mate, even from a, a military perspective, like I ended my career with over 140 days of full paid leave in my book because I just kept working, working, working over six months long service. Even just getting so much more regimented in forcing people to take time off in significant chunks. We know when someone serves five years, 10 years, 15 years, making them go and spend, you know, months with their family and things like that. We're just not smart in that long-term investment because just like corporate Australia is these days, we're so focused on those short-term returns and it takes real leadership and courage to sort of stand up and say, hey, I'm willing to actually not have all of my soldiers and staff for this period of time because they're off investing in themselves uh, for the longevity. And too often, again, we see our people as assets to be used as opposed to humans that can actually provide even further if we take that time to invest further. Yeah. And like other veterans, this transition is is hard to come back to normal life. And the Defence Force and the government, and as you found out, lots of people kind of leave you to your own devices, I suppose, with a lack of support. And probably for you, you found that even more with your defamation case. Yeah, this is this moral injury we talk about, and it's this sense of abandonment. I've recently wrapped up my three-year campaign against the ABC who published an article saying that my platoon had murdered a unarmed civilian in Afghanistan. And at the end of the day, after 12 months worth of federal court proceedings, finally able to bring out, like I knew when they first published, that we weren't even in Afghanistan when they said it happened. And I wrote to defense and I wrote to all sorts of people who were my former bosses just asking, hey, can you please just publicly release our deployment dates so this can be put to bed? And there's just this risk aversion that most people in the regular society know about. But in defense, and part of being an officer and part of my job was stepping forward. And I accept that risk because I'm responsible for my soldiers. And my entire campaign has been fighting for my soldiers as well as me in clearing our name and including the death of one of my guys whose legacy has been brought into this as well. And then not seeing that from the generals, from the political appointees, from the bureaucrats in Canberra who literally have the power to step in and make a media statement or do something to help us, but leaving it to the lowest ranking officer and his soldiers to fight. Like that's a that's a level of resentment. That's like being, you know, left at the bus stop by your parents, walking out of your life. And especially when I was overseas in Afghanistan, and if ever it looked like the enemy was going to close in on us, overwhelm us, press their advantage, I could call in the finger of God from the skies. I could call in support from the guys back at base. And, you know, everyone would just be there in a heartbeat. And when we've needed it most, when we're literally losing more soldiers than we've lost in combat, when my guys are struggling more in their mental and emotional health, and I'm communicating all this very clearly in the media and letters in the rest, there's no support. There's crickets. There's no one at the end of the phone. There's no one coming in the quick reaction force. That's been 
the hardest thing for me because the best version of me was the guy in combat, the guy training him, the guy fighting for his guys today because of all those values and all that training and responsibility that I was taught during my military career. And yet that standard doesn't apply to those above me who you should think it applies even more. Yeah, it, it baffles me. I saw, I think, in the inquiry with um, Senator Malcolm Roberts and uh-huh. he was talking, of, he just put it so beautifully and the defence just were like a deer in headlights. <laughs> At Senate estimates, he's like, did defence even reach out to Heston Russell over the last three years? And um, um, no. <laughs> he's like are you serious like everything and this is the whole issue mate with a lot of the veterans mental health and support system it's all reactive it's all like you have to self-refer i've had the most public media battle let alone a year in the federal court and for the department of veterans affairs to never even reach out once the department of defense and none of the colonels and generals that i happily served and got medals for their time as my commanders to not even reach out it, it's enough to literally drive you insane. And it has taken so much of my mental and emotional strength. And it's literally pushed me to that next level of evolution where I'm just so deeply disappointed at feeling so abandoned. But I've had to focus on how much support there has been from my soldiers, from everyday Australians, mate. Like I walk walking my walking my sausage dog and someone will stop me on the street and just say, Hey, you know, your fight has been inspiring. And we need more of that. But I've never had to fight so hard being so poorly resourced. There's no helicopters. There's no drones. There's no team of commandos beside me. There's a lot behind me. But again, so many of them have had to be so careful, even in, you know, not being identified in the media because they have families, they have lives. And we have some media in Australia at the moment who are more than happily put our picture up there at a time when Afghanistan is run by the Taliban. There are terrorists who would love to get back at us because of the amazing work we did. There are real world risks. And I'm even campaigning at the moment for a Veterans Protection Act to just make it that any accusations or allegations against veterans for any combat operations have to go through the courts before the media can actually publish anything about it. Because even throughout my entire court case, mate, I have getting contacted by people from Afghanistan and all the rest. And it's just madness and it's so fascinating to see where people's priorities are the media sort of controls a lot of the politicians these days those who require it for their own affirmation and their own authority and sort of our veterans are the ones who are being left by the wayside i can't believe that from a media perspective they sometimes especially highly decorated and and awarded and you've got a long list of honors and awards that you've got but In Australia, the media really seemed to hang guys like you out to dry. In a case where you sit there and you go, hang on, some of the people that you encountered, that you killed, that you fought against, were some did some of the most gruesome acts, and then they make you out to be the bad guy? Like, it just, yeah. it baffles me. Well, that's it, mate. There's an agenda or a narrative starts and then people feel like they need to reinforce it when it becomes, you know, shown to be incorrect. And I mean, as we've learned just everyday society 101, why do people attack others? Why do people say negative things about others unless they're valid because they're either projecting or protecting their own insecurities or their own issues? And a lot of these journalists that I have met 
journalists. It's journalists and politicians. They're the two jobs in Australia you need zero qualifications for. Zero. You can walk off the street tomorrow into the ABC and be called a journalist and not be allowed to expose your sources, not go through any ethical training. And additionally, have zero accountability and have your court cases paid for by the Australian taxpayers and be allowed to publish an article the next day. And what we have really realized is that veterans are terrible at speaking out and representing ourselves because that's not our culture. That's not what our community thrives on. It's actually contrary to it. And I've sort of experienced that myself. But if we don't speak for ourselves and others are speaking for us, and unless you've been through and lived it yourself, you don't have the full context to, to say it and put it out there. And this all also comes down from, like I said, when Afghanistan fell in 2021, the biggest failure, the biggest strategic failure of Australia and our politicians is that we never took the Australian public along the teens worth of years that we were in Afghanistan fighting. And the fact that it was left to veterans like myself and others who served in Afghanistan to answer questions like, was it worth it? You know, <laughs> of course it was worth it, you know, at a, at a human level, at a team level. It might have failed at the strategic level, but we knew why we were there and what we were doing. And then to sit here afterwards when many of us miss that environment, that culture, that community, and have everyday Australians asking us, was it worth it? Because we haven't taken them on that journey. You, you just couldn't be bothered. And when you couldn't be bothered reflecting on and remembering that part of you that was the most motivated, experienced, and incredibly in its performance version of you, you lose part of yourself. And it's a very sad thing to put that in a box and not want to bring that forward into everyday life. And that's what a lot of us have had to push through. And it's uncomfortable when people don't understand you, when it has been the part that's made you the best version of you as well. And it's something we need to continue to keep working on. Mm. Heston, I've got to congratulate you because after what you've been through, it would have been easy just to sit on your couch, mate, and hide from the world. But for you, I can see that that vision and you're kind of fueled by this stuff, by your by what's happening to veterans. And can you just give us a bit of an idea on what are some of the things that are that are now in place for veterans that are that are helping them? Yeah. I mean, I'll just quickly touch on what you said there beforehand. The part that I've also had to realize myself the last three years in taking on the ABC is I need to be so careful how fueled I can be by purpose and lose myself in that purpose and have it become my identity and push everything out to be focusing on my mission. And that's at a place now that I'm looking to rebuild the personal side of myself and not be so ready to attack and engage. And that's that's very common sort of across the board. There's still so much that needs to be done though. Like the, this Royal Commission, its report is due out the middle of next year, the middle of 2024. And the whole part is going to be how those recommendations are taken and what the government does about it. But so much of it actually just comes down to individuals at the community level, reconnecting with each other having those conversations and finding projects with purpose that aren't just us simply getting back together on Anzac Day and aren't getting us together on Remembrance Day and having beers and doing whatever. And the Veteran Games was one massive project that I've been working on for two years that forces veterans to reach out, connect with their old own mates, form a team of eight and train up for things like obstacle course challenges and other stuff that they won't find out about until they get there and to put their skills and experience, their actions and attitudes on the line right there and then being authentic, being vulnerable, putting in the effort and and all the rest. There's so many organizations out there. I'm really frustrated by a lot of the very, very large traditional organizations. You know, you, you've heard of the 
RSL, the national RSL, there's a national commando association legacy, all the rest of these really big organizations that I haven't heard a single word from over the entire three years I've taken on the ABC because they choose to not be political when it's potentially controversial, as opposed to what in particular the RSL was raised for to represent us. And that's why more younger veterans are stepping up to support each other. Like it has to be about people, not about politics or profit that you get from grants and all the rest. And look, the the biggest issue and the biggest area for improvement is with the Department of Veterans Affairs and the ministerial positions. I mean, veterans as a demographic, you know, there were 581,000 veterans recorded at the last census. That's actually a significant demographic that we haven't yet quantified what that is from a commercial spend and influenced corporate Australia to step up and support our veterans better through to just amassing those voices to require our government to be better in what they do. We're one of the only minorities that's a merit-based minority that is not represented by someone who's from our community. You know, the, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs is an Indigenous First Nations Australian. The Minister for Women is a woman. The Minister for Veterans Affairs is, is not a veteran, and it's a portfolio that's a junior portfolio within politics that people go through in order to progress themselves. The Defence Minister, Miles, might be a good guy by all accounts, but his primary job is being Deputy Prime Minister, and you can see that flow through. And Defence Industry is, again, not a, not a veteran, even though there are veterans within the Labor Party who I know wanted those positions, but it seemed to be a political position as opposed to focusing on people. But look, hey, the biggest thing I've also learned over the last three years is that we focus too much on the political level. We need to focus on the community level. We need to focus on uplifting the status of veterans in Australia. So all those big businesses that were happily jumping in and supporting the yes vote will also jump in and promote Anzac Day and promote Remembrance Day and help our veterans feel valued by the corporates of this country who arguably benefit the most from the freedoms and safety and stable markets that we're designed to fight for. And we need to do a hell of a lot more as far as um, bringing back some at least respect or consideration for what happens to our veterans when, um, you know, these war crime stories and all the rest come out. When we talk about all the three and a half thousand special forces personnel who are deployed to Afghanistan, as opposed to a few individual incidences and people that need to be investigated in which we welcome those investigations because Everyone's being tarred with the same brush. Generalizations are really killing members of our community. And it comes down to the people on the ground in Australia who are the ones who influence all the way up the food chain. And we need to remember that and work together to do that for that right purpose. I think when it comes down to respect, and and I've been to America a few times now, the difference between America and Australia in regards to the respect for our veterans and our defense force is like chalk and cheese. Yeah. And I love love this conversation. I love this reference point because the biggest issue we have is the way in which veterans transition to transition out of the military into Australian society and don't feel that relevance and don't feel that level of even support. Mm -hmm. And the US does that amazingly. And the big difference between the US veteran suicide crisis and mental health issues, so much more of theirs comes from acute combat trauma because they have really been exposed to big combat for a sustained scale. Whereas unfortunately, particularly in Afghanistan, the government was only really willing to send out the special forces each day to engage in combat operations. Our regular infantry and armored corps brethren and engineers definitely got exposed to it. But a lot of that was sort of reactive, them getting attacked, whereas we went out sort of hunting every single day. And the US has had 
Pearl Harbor and World War II, the US has had the twin twin trade towers. They have had that visceral impact back home, realizing why they have a defense force and why they need them. And that level of respect is there. And so many veterans transitioning in the US system feel that support when they transition. They just need more support dealing with that sort of acute combat trauma and PTSD. Whereas here in Australia, you know, you have people transitioning to not being understood, let alone accepted by society in some occasions that forces them to reject that part of their identity that has been all of their identity. And that's that sort of space we find ourselves in. And that's where I see is an incredible opportunity, Steve, for us to do a lot more work in the corporate Australia side, in the social Australia side, and stop relying on unqualified political party positioning politicians to be able to provide that. And that's been a sort of a mindset shift that we need to really try and help introduce into the veteran community as well, because we're so used to going up the chain to the politicians and we need to go more across to the society level and corporate Australia level. Yeah. There's so many things we can do. 10 years ago when I first went to America and I remember, I, I think it was the movie called American Sniper which was yeah. around Chris and they played the national, the U S national anthem at the start of that movie in the yeah. cinema. Right. And Matt, I, I get tears cause I, I think that's a, it was a great movie to watch, but really touches on at the end there of the, the PTSD and the mental health challenges of veterans as well. But, you know, you go to an airport in America, they have their own lane. Veterans yeah. have their own lane. If a veteran is standing there, in line, a TSA person will come and grab them and say, oh no, you come through. Yeah. And see, look, most of us don't want that. It's not a very Australian thing, but what it is, is them knowing that they are understood and accepted and respected. Like it's just simply that. And that's all that we can hope for. Like you're never going to appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and even that, like we, yeah, it's that, it's that affirmation. It really is. It's just affirmation that you're, because you sacrifice a lot in service, mate. You really who have to do it tough, going bush, wearing uniforms, the, the routine, there's all these extra layers of discipline where if you're late five minutes to a meeting, you can get charged and lose a week's worth of pay or have to do a week's worth of extra duties. It's a really finite and, and high pressure sort of role. And there are lots out there, but it's one that's done often behind the scenes, away from the cameras, off the social media. And just to know that what you did and went through is worth something to the average everyday person is all the affirmation people need, let alone to then unfortunately have the situation here in Australia where instead we have too many people going, oh, you were in special forces in Afghanistan. Does that mean, you know, you killed civilians? You're like, wow, we just have missed the entire middle ground of this conversation, but it's a big middle ground and it's a big opportunity for us to sort of step up and have these conversations, I think. And hopefully with the Royal Commission handing down their findings and the report coming out, mid next year. Hopefully there's there's more more change in a number of areas around Australia. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing you touched on beforehand about my sort of purpose and fighting in this, a lot of my purpose comes from the ABC article about my guys first came out October 2020. And they actually released it on the exact day that was the anniversary of the death of my soldier. So that's one massive bit of motivation there. But my grandfather, who fought on the hook in Korea and was the regimental sergeant major of an infantry battalion in Vietnam, he was sort of on his way out of life around that period. And he just called me up and said, don't let them do to your soldiers what they did to mine when we came back from Vietnam. 
he died December 2020, two months later. And so much of the support I have personally received behind the scenes has been from our Vietnam veterans who've literally seen Afghanistan as being the exact same carbon copy of the failure that was the withdrawal from Saigon that was the way in which too many people were treated coming back from Vietnam. And they really sort of see how much is needed to be on the front foot in things like media and socials and all the rest to influence that community level. So there's definitely a wave of support out there. Uh, the issue is you don't see much of it from those others who are in those pointed senior veteran positions, but the groundswell is there. And as per everything, it just needs more and more time to build and build and to have those conversations and have that sort of ground level influence permeate through. Yeah. And I think the more and more you get that story out there, the more you can get other veterans to tell their story and, and really champion that. I think it'll continue to break through slowly, but like anything, it's always says slowly and then suddenly. And, and just like what you were saying before with your own struggles, mate, it's just about getting more and more veterans to appreciate who they are, what their service provided them, but who they are outside of all those labels and all those other circumstances and to be empowered by their experiences. You know, I have so many people coming up to me like, oh, wow, you've been through this, you've been through this, you must be good at this. And sometimes I don't actually realize that I am until someone's had that conversation because you've just been so used to that being the circumstance. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and unless we have those conversations or are put in those situations, you're just like, holy cow, I'm actually good at this. I've never done a formal course or qualification, but I understand people, I understand problems, and I understand how you can put the two together to, to perform better outcomes. It's it's just constantly learning and not thinking that the best version of you was simply back then, but taking forward what you can learn from that. Yeah. Heston, one of the things I loved was your Rails concept. Oh, uh, yeah. Values. That sort of ties in all of this conversation where I talk about you need to know who you are outside of labels, purpose, community, the rest, and it comes down to values. And again, the commando selection course assesses every single candidate against the commando values or the commando attributes. And every single activity you do has to be justified against like what attribute are you testing when they're sorting out 400 kilos of white rice from brown rice? What are you testing? Teamwork, communication, attention to detail, like, and they're marked and assessed on those. And we would remove people from the commandos, even if they were the best shot in the unit, but they went against any of those commando attributes. And mm. it's what values are and my values are that they've taken me a while to reflect on is when I'm on or off the rails, responsibility, authenticity, integrity, leadership, and service, and really bringing it back to, am I being responsible or am I being entitled? Am I being authentic or am I being what I think I'm meant to be or what I'm trying to project? Integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing when people are not watching. Integrity is doing the right thing because it is the right thing. And then leadership, as I said before, is a service and leadership is a mindset. Leadership is putting the others in purpose before you and motivating others through influence, not through inspiration, not through a fear of authority. And then service. I need that part of me that is in service to a purpose or in service to a team to allow me to feel selfless because I think like us in that conversation. We all talk about resilience and how it is when you get back up and you fall down. But my best resilience is actually proactive resilience that comes from having a purpose, being a mission or a team and people before me because my head and heart is out 
with them and that is a force field in front of me and I'm less inside my own head and less inside my own emotions and less inside my own pain because they need me or the mission needs me and it really elevates that level of performance for me. Yeah. And I think this chat today's had so much insights and and some great things, but that rails concept to me is something that people can apply to their own life or they can they can have their own set of values or yeah. rules. I just love how it's am I off the rails or am I on the rails? And yeah. I just love that. We love a good acronym in the military. Love it. And words and symbols have so much meaning. Have that on my website now. And it's actually like a bit of a, a workshop that I do with people. Part of my keynote stuff sometimes is just have them commence that process to really figure out a brand for themselves, an acronym for themselves, their own values that they can put on the fridge, that they can put on the back of the toilet door, they can put on their phone screensaver that helps them just check, hey, am I being the true me? Am I in my best alignment to be in my elite level of performance and everything that I do because I'm focused on my mindset and everything else in between? And also going back and testing and adjusting that and do you imagine if we had conversations going on a date? It's like, hey, what are your values? What do you stand for? Boom. <laughs> what are your love languages? I'm acts of service and words of affirmation these days. Like just breaking people down to who we are at that human level mm. without requiring relationships to go through adversity, to go through failure, to go through issues, to really draw out the true metal of what people are deep down. It's having those conversations and we most align and connect with people who align and connect with our values, but we don't communicate that in a structured format. We just discover that, which is also cool, but I just feel like we can really elevate and advance ourselves if we first and foremost put in the work to understand who we are and have the courage to be vulnerable and tell others what that is that we're willing to share it with. Because you can learn so, so much about someone from those deeper questions. And it was interesting, my wife and I earlier this year went to Jay Shetty's Love Rules Tour. And he got two audience members out of the crowd. And he was talking about this about, okay, well, let's ask a few different questions rather than just the normal chit chat, asking questions and how much you can learn more about that person rather than trying to, as you say, go through those obstacles and those challenges and then go, oh, imagine if we would have found this out at the start. Now, I know it's not as easy in practice as. You don't sit down and you go, oh, you know, thanks for coming on a date with me. Can I ask you, when was the, the time you felt most vulnerable? Ask, ask people, hey, during COVID, during lockdowns, what did you miss the most? Did you miss physically being around people? Did you miss like getting hugs from people? Did you miss being able to go and work out at your gym for the workout or for being around people? Like finding out where you perform your lowest is just as important as figuring out where you perform your highest because the true test of culture and personal ethos is discovered during crisis. And also when people experience absolute success, we've all seen those people who literally change when all of a sudden they've achieved what they wanted to, they get that promotion, they get that whatever, and you just actually appreciate how much they've been manipulating or exploiting people along the way. Yeah, it's putting in that work. And just imagine, I, I live for the day where everyone's, Instagram bio or Facebook bio up the top says, these are my values. This is my love language. <laughs> let's connect or let's not. <laughs> yep. And we've mentioned the love languages a bit. And, and for yeah. anyone that hasn't read it, you've got to read the five love languages. Yeah. And there's a lot of 
preachy stuff in there, but skip over it to it and read it with the mindset of replace the word love with the word value or motivation. And it literally helps you unlock the ways in which you can help to expand or increase your level of influence and inspiration of others. When you finish the commando selection course as an officer, I'd make them all go and read it because the more you understand about how people feel valued, even in the workplace, you know, the simple thing is shaking someone's hand each day might be able to give them that physical touch they need. Going and standing near someone where they're doing their work may be the best thing for them or the worst thing for them because you understand who they are at that personal level. But yeah, it's a really, really good book. The more we learn about people, the more we can learn about any job in this world, I believe. Heston, when you think about success, what does it mean to you? Oh, this is a good question and it's changed a lot. Success for me was holding the ABC to account. Success for me was having every Australian better support our veterans. Success for me has always been so mission and, and purpose and project focused, but I think I'm into a new phase where I really need to focus on success for me is achieving happiness. And that's been something that I've really been failing at because I've been putting everything else before me and just not finding that balance. So I definitely get happiness from helping others. That's that service part of my values, but I need to focus a lot more on the Heston Russell part of that and what brings me personal happiness. And instead of switching from one to the other or having separate identities in my life, bringing them all together. So it's still an absolute work in progress. And working towards that success, what are some of the daily habits that you've introduced into your life? Yeah. So I've recently learned a hell of a lot more about my own personal health. I think we separate mental health and personal health too much. For instance, PTSD for me means that my nervous system is literally evolved to a state where it operates so much better in fight or flight mode from a performance level, short-term, long-term, terrible. So I operate so much off dopamine and endorphins and really lack the ability to produce and enjoy oxytocin, serotonin. So doing things like taking my dog for a walk, playing with my dog, going out and being social, not sitting at home and working on a project, forcing myself to be around others is massive. And a large part of that sort of starts from fitness. Fitness is a not negotiable for me sort of each day, at least an hour. And it doesn't have to be going to the gym. That can be going for a walk. That can be doing stretching and breath work that I try and do every single morning, moving my body because it just gets sore and stagnant from sitting in a chair all day. Through to sort of diet nutrition is another massive part. You, know, you don't have to be a monk about what you do or don't eat or drink, but you know, alcohol literally is a poison and trying to limit it. It is still a, such a social piece, but even focusing on filtered water and as organic food as I can get and just appreciating how much more my head and heart function better when I'm really focusing on what I put into it. The biggest part for me has been working on that sort of social aspect. For too long, I've maintained social connections that have been sort of purpose and professional focused in what they can provide to achieving the mission and needing to be a lot more sort of social just for the sake of being social and being around others because appreciating that I operate better around others. And it's very dangerous when I'm in my own sort of echo chamber as well. So I think a routine each day of that fitness slash movement piece, the focus on health and nutrition and the focus on needing to be social and get out and connect with people is a part of my sort of not negotiable weekly routine. Appreciating that there are some days where I just want to sit at home and do nothing. And also, I think that's been a big part for me has been maintaining a longer term mindset and not drawing shame from every one little 
time where I don't meet one of those objectives or I don't want to go outside and allow that to sort of spiral into a bigger decline in my mental or physical health. Yeah, and it's so important to listen to yourself, what you actually need rather than what other people need from you. And being kind is like I hold myself to massively high standards. People love hearing my career and my experience, like you've been through so much. It's like, yeah, I really have. And I take that on board as so much responsibility because I have lived through all of this. I have this perspective that I feel responsible to help change the world for the better. But if I'm not accepting and kind to myself first, I'm going to be useless to everyone else. And I'm going to enter into all of these conversations with a mindset or with emotions that aren't going to be the best for the the short or long term. And it's um, something I'm still working on, but appreciating I don't have to be everything to everyone. First and foremost, I just need to be me to me and maintain that and and check to make sure I don't go off those rails. Yep. Now, through your life, obviously, you've had a lot of great role models and a, a lot of influences. Is there someone you'd say would be your greatest teacher in your life? Oh, I think this has actually been a lot with which I've struggled with and a lot of which I got frustrated with for a lot of my life as well, because so many people say, these are my mentors, these are my role models, these are this, and particularly being gay, special forces, and whatever else, I found it very difficult to find anyone that has been able to be my sort of teacher in all of life's lessons. And I think I put a lot in thinking I could find one person to be that, but now even on reflection, when I moved to the US to be within their special forces 2015, I spent a lot of time in LA and in New York and I met professional men with amazing careers who I didn't know were gay until someone else sort of told me. And some of those people are still in my life and they're very, very senior, very successful executives in you know all sorts of things. And just realizing how much they had a indirect and direct influence on me without me even knowing. I told you about like my dad in my military career. I mean, my, my mum was an aerobics instructor and worked at a bottle shop in afternoons after school. And when I went to the military to join the Defense Academy, she, as a mature age student, went and became a registered nurse. And she said she was inspired by me going to university. And you know, my family, I'm the only one from my family that's done that. My sister's now doing her nursing. Yeah, you know, we're a very working class level. And I think I've drawn so much inspiration from these little pieces, bits of different pieces, like the strength and resilience I've seen in my mom to like even career change through to, I was so inspired and motivated by my soldiers, Steve. As a platoon commander, I was often the youngest. When I deployed Afghanistan on our first combat rotation, I was the third youngest in the platoon of 44, but I was the leader. I was a planner. I was responsible for those people. And just seeing young and older guys than me who had so much more to lose. They had families, they had kids, they had all of these other responsibilities that I never had to worry about going into combat. I could be reckless with my own safety for the right reasons. They showed the most incredible levels of courage and commitment equal to and greater than me with so much more to lose, with so much more that must've been on their mindset. And that's just so inspiring to me to see those young Australian men risk their lives with so much to lose. And again, that's such a huge motivator for me when all of a sudden the media dare chooses to attack the most perfect people I've ever seen doing things in the most selfless ways at a time where it's so much more dangerous for them to try and stand up and defend themselves <laughs> from people who are commenting on our lives and have never contributed in any way or never will contribute in any way that these young 
incredible heroes have. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm all full of the long-winded answers today. <laughs> that's right. I, I love those. I love those reflections. That, and that's it. The biggest issue for me, mate, is, and this is the military mindset and special forces mindset, I, my head's so thinking about right here and now and what's next and just so readily compartmentalizes and puts things in boxes because it's not relevant. Let's go. We've got things to do. But I love these podcasts and I love these conversations because it's some of the only times that I do reflect. Uh, and again, it makes me feel more whole coming out of this conversation and allowing myself to even be inspired by thinking back on some of those occasions with my guys that what they've done and even what I've done. And you just feel more whole as a person. I think it's so easy to forget who we are and where we've come from. And I don't like to reflect on who we are and where we've come from because I like to think about it's what you do today and tomorrow. But you need to remember who you are and where you've come from and those experiences to feel just so much full as a person and apply yourself to everything we have moving forward. That's where I think I draw the most of my confidence for the right reasons as opposed to feeling nervous going into situations. And everyone has a story. Everyone has reflections. And so many of us, and, and even going through the process of having this podcast, so many people I'll say, oh, you know, will you come on the podcast? And they'll say, I don't really think I've got a story. And then after the podcast, I'm like, wow, that was amazing. And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what I was saying before. You don't know what you don't know. We have all our own experiences. And, and as long as you're having these conversations through the responsible lens of looking to potentially say things that might help others who are listening, only knowing that we ourselves draw help from listening to others' podcasts and have other conversations. I think it's, it's great. And, and people will pick and choose otherwise, but yeah, we don't know what we don't know. And we're often the worst. And especially in Australia, mate, where it's very hard to speak up about yourself and, and not be cut down this tall poppy cutting syndrome. And that's why I love the US so much. And I spend so much time there. You stand up and everyone's like, yeah, you, you go, you get it. <laughs> uh, if you're an asshole or arrogant, they'll pull you straight back down for sure. But they have this default that looks at things positively and supportively from what I've experienced. Whereas so many people back here, it's just this attack, 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 which again, I've learned so much comes from projecting or protecting your own insecurities. Yeah. I always say just one person, just one person listens to this. If yeah. just one person that is a veteran that's walking a similar path that sits there and, and gets inspiration from this is, am I off the rails? Am I on the rails? Starts talking about this value. Starts... They may be sitting there from a mental health perspective, really struggling. And just for them to know that there's things that they can reach out to, they can sign up for the veteran games next year and be part of that team environment. Again, they can, they can access some of the things that you've championed, some of the things that will hopefully be rolled out in the next few years due to some of the action and efforts that have been made. It's just worth it. If, if there's just one person today that just goes, do you know what? I'm not okay. I'm going to reach out and I'm going to get help or I'm going to make a change or I'm going to go and see my GP or whatever it is, then it's worth it. You're spot on, mate. And I think a massive theme that you've just hit on is actually taking the time to define what success is. I think there's a, a lot of us get lost because we're taught that success is not one person, but thousands of people. It's all these large numbers because we're in this place of comparison and competition as opposed to what is the actual purpose. And that's been a massive one for me, even talking about my purpose of being happiness. So often I've just outsourced what success is to others. Am I making others happy? Am I achieving for others? Am I achieving 
these missions. And it's like, no, no, what is success for me? And I think that's the other big exercise a lot of people do is figure out what your values are, figure out what your purpose and all the rest is, but then figure out what is success for you. Otherwise you are just constantly chasing this never ending finish line. Yeah. And moving from a, a life like you have serving others to actually going, how do I serve myself? hundred percent, mate. And that's, that's everyone. I mean, from a mother who's raised a family through to the guy out there who's been trying to achieve and support that family and all the rest. It's so easy to put ourselves last in that order of merit and it's so fulfilling. But at the end of the day, like so many people like say to me, you, you're going to be no use to anyone else if you, you aren't looking after yourself and prioritizing yourself some of the time. Yeah. You know, one of the reflections in the chat today was around some of the things that you've been through in the military, transitioning back into life and how now you'd actually be better in those positions. So if I could take you back to chatting to a pre-military young Heston, uh, what advice would you give to him? Um, the same advice I got from my dad, probably be good at your job and be a good person. And the biggest part I think I've learned is learning about yourself and the, the time it's the moment when you finally achieve your authenticity and you don't just achieve it and sit in it and hold on to it. You have to keep working for towards it, but there's so much that we think we're meant to be, what a leader is, what leadership is, what a military man is, what a gay man is, all these sort of things, all these labels that are out there and just actually appreciating that you are the best version of your own brand as long as you're doing it for the right and responsible reasons and just put some of that energy into figuring out who you are without being so reliant on how you're accepted by others and just know that your actions and attitudes will do the talking for you. I just, just having that conversation of the whole, like you are enough. Don't sit there in mediocrity, push yourself and test yourself, but know at the end of the day that you have what it takes to be good at your job and be a good person and find out a true and authentic person to be able to practice that. Yeah. I love that. Now, Heston, I know you're available for keynote speeches and coaching, training, those kind of things, telling your story. For those that want to connect with you, what's the best way? Yeah, HestonRussell.com. I'm now able to get back into my public speaking now that the ABC court case is over and I just really enjoy that sort of stuff. And I'm also, hopefully, depends when this come out, but yeah, looking towards March, April next year, we'll finally have my book come out as well. So yeah, my website, HestonRussell.com. Get on there, get in contact with me and let's see if we can do something if you want me to be involved. Awesome. I look forward to getting a copy of your book. It's been a labor of love. I tell you what, if you want a exercise in reflection, take the time to sit down and write a book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really yeah, completing. It's really cool. Yeah, it's definitely something that's in my mindset around, you know, writing a book sometime and going through the podcast and going through the reflection I have over the last five years. There's a lot of stuff and I'm just yeah. waiting for it all to come to me how it kind of lays out, but it'll be something that, uh, that I will certainly roll out. Yeah. And I, I even just reckon for people just to write a book about your life at some point that even if it's just to give to your next generation, your kids, your something, it doesn't need to be something that becomes a best publisher or is even public. Mm. I've got so much from writing this book and even getting others that I worked with and lived with to have a read of it and just people to understand how you think about things when they're like, oh my goodness, I never realized you thought about things that way. That explains so much, this, this, and this. And it's just an amazing learning activity. My brother and mother both did StoryWorth. It's, 
an online system. I think it's American and okay. there's 52 questions. So a question a week and you answer it about your life. And then at the end of the year, you get a fully put together book. Oh, wow. I've never heard of this. That sounds yeah, great. So it's, a, it's a great gift for a parent or a grandparent. My brother did it for his 50th. My mum, we got it for her two or three years ago. And it was really, really good. What's it called again? Storyworth. Storyworth. You should have yep. that sponsored by. Sounds good. <laughs> that sounds, I'm going to have a look. That sounds really cool. It's very good. And it's pretty pretty reasonably priced as well. And then you can buy more books. So each of my siblings got a copy of my mum's book and my mum got a copy as well. So it's good. So cool. Love that. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier to have the conversations when you're writing them down, isn't it? It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It is. Well, Heston... Thanks for your time, mate. It was awesome to to catch up at Jet's session. And I just sat there and I was like, ah, I've got to interview you. I love your mission and your vision around veterans, helping those that have served us serve a purpose that is for the rest of their life, really, and really being able to ingrain in Australia the respect and also the investment that's needed to look after those that have looked after us. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate it, Steve. And my biggest concern is that people don't realize that latter point until it's too late or until you actually need it. And that's where we all know that, you know, long-term success in culture and people and performance comes down to what you do incrementally. I always said, and I've always seen this in combat, you don't rise to the level required in combat. You default to the level of training. And it's that investment we do up front in everyday life that is needed. And Thanks for having me on and thanks for having these conversations. And I hope people listening realize that it's not just takeaways for, for veterans. All of this stuff, mental health, wellness, and mental fitness, as I like to call it, is just so equal across the board. It comes down to understanding you, understanding how things can impact you. And hopefully people took away a few things they can help in their everyday life, be they veterans or not. Yeah, no, that's awesome. All right, mate. Well, I look forward to keeping in touch and uh, continuing to follow your journey. And we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Dave. Really appreciate it. Good luck. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.